0: Good evening. Okay, it's going to be one of those kind of nights, isn't it? It's good. Good to see you all. Uh, I've had a strange digital week. Uh, It started off uh, last Sunday afternoon at around three o'clock. You know, it was a kind of new kind of bit of snow that had come down to Tame and I had to get to Essex to go and speak in a, a church that's headed by the guy that that heads up reform, which is a kind of um, evangelical movement within the Church of England. Uh, So I was slightly nervous. This guy is uh, kind of a a bigwig. He sits on the council of the Evangelical Allowance, so must do a good job. So I was making sure my sermon was just, just going to be perfect. And I thought I'd get a head start on uh, getting the car ready for the journey, uh, because I didn't want to be late and uh, so i I took my bags out down to the car but i'd forgotten the keys i left my bags by the side of the car went back into the house unlocked the car but then i saw all the snow on the windscreen so i got some water and i got some uh, like a a scraper thing and began to scrape the windscreen off and uh, turn the engine of the car on to get the heater going so it would all be defrosted with time I got in and I thought, oh, you know, it is snowing. Uh, I better take some supplies. So I brought a banana and a bar of chocolate just in case I got snowed in and uh, a sleeping bag and um, I didn't have a spade. So I just, uh, what did I take? A little trowel, I think was all I managed. (laughs) So I was hoping not to be really badly snowed in. And uh, then, oh, then I, I realised on the journey down, I was going close to where my brother and sister-in-law live, uh, in Enfield, because they're studying at Oak Hill College. And, uh, and they wanted a TV, wanted to borrow a TV of us, so I put a big TV in the back of the car, and we're all ready to go. I get in the car, turn the engine on, and uh, reverse out of my drive. But I'm not going anywhere. And I figure, oh, you know, it's that ice on the kind of uh, driveway. So I put my foot down on the accelerator and uh, still not going anywhere. It's a bit harder. And uh, so the car's moving now. But the front of the car moves up rather than back. And at that moment, my wife, Miriam, runs out of the house. uh, And she's kind of looking really pale. And she says, "Chris, you've just run over your laptop. So you remember I left my bag by the side of the car when I forgot my keys. Well, it was still there by the side of the car when I was reversing away. And so my laptop, my new iPod Touch, which my wife bought me for Christmas, uh, a microphone, my suitcase, some clothes, you name it, it was turned into a digital pancake. Now, I couldn't actually go and open the bag because I couldn't face looking inside, you know, what's it going to be like? And so I you know, kind of slowly and, you know, had a quick look and, yeah, it was dead. And so somehow I had to give a talk at evening without using PowerPoint. And I thought, is, is that possible? <laughs> and I remembered, you know, Jesus managed without PowerPoint, so it, it must be possible. But uh, I've got a PowerPoint here tonight, okay. So I, I've had a kind of digital fast um, because... Nothing I've Got kind of works this week, and uh, it's an interesting experience to go offline uh, for a week. You know, Lily Allen, she's a singer, she's decided to go offline as well. Uh, She decided that um, the way she was living online was actually bad for her health, so she's had a break. And Ricky Gervais has given up Twitter. He gave it up yesterday because he couldn't make head nor tail of it. So lots of us are having interesting relationships with technology this week. Well, I want to start by thinking about the book of Daniel and we'll think about Daniel and some of the challenges and the opportunities he faced and we'll apply some thinking about Daniel for our own situation. Is that a good idea? So it'll be good for you to open up chapter 1 of Daniel, which is on page 883. So if you've got a Bible, open one. I'll assume if you're looking at a mobile, it's because you've got the Bible on your phone. And you can get the Bible on your phone, uh, and it's great. There's a really good one. Uh, if you've got kind of an iPhone or you've got a kind of Blackberry or something, there's a really good one called Uversion, which is a free download, and it'll, you can do your daily Bible reading notes on it. It will remind you what to read. It's fantastic. So, yeah, it's all right if you look at your phone during the sermon. And if you have got a Bible in one hand and a phone in the other hand, I'll assume you're tweeting about the sermon. Okay? <laughs> so I, I just have a very generous spirit that that's what you doing. Okay, Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to just really briefly look at three kind of ideas, if you like, of of things that had changed for Daniel because of where he was. So this is written a few hundred years, maybe four or five hundred years, before Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem. And uh, where are they? Well, the geography of the situation is really interesting. You know, the people of Israel, name kind of gives it away, lived in Israel. But God's people had not been faithful to God and so as part of the punishment on them God had taken them or allowed a nation to come, invade them, a bit like kind of France in the Second World War, invaded and another government put in place uh, and they were all part of the great big Babylonian Empire and uh, there were loads of people living in Israel still but the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was really really clever. And he thought to himself, how am I going to be able to control this, this Jewish nation when they all hate Babylonians? So he had a cunning plan. And his cunning plan was, I'm going to take the brightest and the best young men from Israel and I'm going to take them to Babylon. Now Babylon is kind of where Iraq is today. Okay? I'm going to take them thousands of miles from their own home And I'm going to enrol them in a special training programme. It's actually going to be a bit of a brainwashing programme. Because my plan is, if I can get them to look Jewish on the outside, but be Babylonian on the inside, I can send them back and they can control their families and all their relatives uh, by being my little puppets. So I'll be in control, but they'll be doing the bad, dirty work for me. So that was the plan clever plan. Lots of um, dictatorships and empires have used a similar plan throughout the centuries. So, here we are. Daniel and his three mates were part of that plan. Taken away from their homes, away from their families, all their other mates and plonked there in Babylon. Now, that was their geographical change. But I guess they had an identity crisis too. Because when you're taken away from everything that you know and love, it's really difficult to know who you are. A lot of people have a bit of an identity crisis when they go to university. You know, They're used to having their mates and knowing where they are and what life's about, but going to university is a really big change, and so some people just completely change everything about themselves. I remember when I went up to university, I did try to change most things about my life, because up until the time I was 18, my mother was in charge of my wardrobe. I mean clothes. I mean she, she made me and she, I love my mum she's one of my favourite people in the whole world but she made me a knitted tank top. <laughs> now you know there's nothing wrong with a knitted tank top uh, except where I lived I was the only person within a four mile radius that had a tank top. You know, I was probably ahead of the culture, that's me, you know. But, you know, so I get to university and I kind of burn all my old clothes and I get some new clothes. And, um, you know, I changed everything I could. I changed my um, music taste because I was into really sad pop music. And when I went to university, I got into kind of, kind of heavier, grungy pop music, uh, rock music, sorry. And uh, I changed my name. See, at home, my name was Krishna. But I got loads of jokes people used to call me Harry Krishna or Hurry Krishna that was the funniest one they could think of and uh, you know I was, I was sick of it you know or they'd come up to me and try and ring play cymbals like those guys at the, um, at the airport or buy me things that were made of, you know colour orange because that's what Harry Krishna is or anyway sad jokes so I got to university and I decided my name would be Krish because no one would guess that was short for Krishna and uh, lots of people just called me Chris and we kind of got over it so Lots of people have this kind of identity change when they move. could be move house, move school, going up from primary school to secondary school, going to university, getting a new job. Lots of opportunities for us to have an identity crisis. Well, Daniel could have had one because now his daily lesson was to be trained in Babylonian language and literature. They were trying to get him to think how great the Babylonian empire was. And they even changed his name, as we saw from the stickers being placed on in the sketch. So imagine that you had a forced name change, not one that you got to choose for yourself. It'll begin to do strange things to you. Who are you? Where are you from? Who are you going to be loyal to? All those sort of questions. And Daniel's community changed too, because he didn't have his mum or his dad or his brothers or his sisters or his uncles or his aunts around him anymore. He just had a few other Jewish boys. And he made some mates when he was there. And that's a really good little picture, actually. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they become like a little cell group or a little house group. And they were decided they were going to support each other and help each other no matter how hard it got. And if you ever get a chance when you move home or you go to university or change job to kind of set up a little cell group where you are, where you can connect with people that are just like you, it can really help you to stay faithful to God. Now, Daniel accepts the name change. He accepts his new uh, course that he's going to study. He accepts his geography and where he's going to live. He makes loads of changes in his life. And if you like, he had kind of three things that he had to decide. What were the things that he was willing to say yes, I will say yes to? Okay? All these changes, I'm going to say yes to some of them. But some of them he had to say, no way, you know, I refuse, that isn't who I am, that isn't who God wants me to be. And some other things I suppose he could remain relatively, well it doesn't matter either way, it's a personal decision. Okay? So as I said, what did he say yes to? He said yes the name change, they actually change their clothes, when you see about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego getting put into the fiery furnace, they all have beards and they all have turbans uh, so, mm, interesting that's not a kind of very Jewish thing, so they accepted a new wardrobe as well, and they accepted the courses they were going to be on but for some reason, Daniel says no to the food and the drink here's a question for you You can answer it with your neighbour. Why did Daniel say no to the food and the drink? Why do you think he said yes to all the other clothes and names and everything else, but he says no to the food and the drink? Why did he say no? Have a little chat with your neighbour for a minute, and uh, we'll come back and talk again. Okay? Any suggestions? Any ideas? Why did he say no to the food and to the drink? Well, one option is is it wasn't kosher. Yeah? So, you know, there were certain food restrictions that the Jewish people had upon them. And that's a possibility. Okay? It's a good one. But it doesn't explain why he said no to the wine, does it? Because there were no kosher rules about wine. In fact, there's more positive things about wine said in the Old Testament than there is about negative things about wine. I can't think of many negative things about wine in the Old Testament. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so it would, it would help us with the food, but not necessarily the wine. That's a good one. Okay? Any other options? Perhaps it been sacrificed to, to an idol. Perhaps the food. Uh, perhaps the. Um, uh, the meat had been offered to idols. Yeah, And actually the custom was so would the vegetables have been offered to an idol too. So it doesn't necessarily help us. Um, but still, you know, you've got to eat something. Um, and again, it doesn't help us with the wine, does it? I wonder why not the wine. I mean, there are all sorts of different ideas. I can't give you a definitive one. I think, my personal opinion, is it was a test of his allegiance. He didn't want to get softened up so that he belonged to the king. I used to have a dog, okay? I've only had one dog in my entire life. His name was Brady. He was a gorgeous, gorgeous white dog that we found about... It was was uncannily four minutes after my wife and I had just had a conversation about how we were never going to get a dog. (laughs) And then we were living in Tirana, and there was a screech of brakes outside, and we heard a yelp... And this tiny, tiny little white puppy ended up kind of running into our apartment block and all kind of cuddled in the corner. And my wife, she's so compassionate, just went down and really got involved and fed him and loved him. And, oh, it was great, lovely little dog. And uh, he grew up big and strong. And uh, we tried to hide him from our landlord because we didn't know... Enough Albanian to say we just found the dog, didn't want to lose the dog, could we have a dog in the apartment? So when the landlady came round, we hid the dog in the kitchen and kind of coughed really loudly every time he barked. <laughs> anyway, in the end, about six months later, the landlord said, please, can we, can, can we borrow your dog to pet him because we think he's great? So <laughs> it wasn't good. Anyway, so we loved that dog. We nursed him to life, you know, sleepless nights, making sure that dog was okay. And we took our dog for a walk in the park. And um, our dog would kind of follow along until he found someone who was eating a ham sandwich. And for a ham sandwich, my dog would trade his loyalty. He was just a very um, easily bought dog. All it took was a ham sandwich and he was yours. Now, Daniel wanted to protect his heart, I believe. He didn't want to get used to living the high life. Because actually it doesn't take long before you get it becomes normal for you to eat really, really posh food or to live an extravagant lifestyle. So he wanted to say no to that, I believe, in order that he would remember who he belonged to and who he was going to be loyal to. That's my understanding. Happy to debate it with you sometime. That's how I put it together. Now I want to stop there for a minute and think, okay, here we are, living thousands of years after Daniel. Are there any ways in which Daniel's situation might be similar to ours? Well, you might say, we, uh, Christians, have become a minority in the United Kingdom. We are closer, some people would say, to what it was like to live as an exile in Babylon than what it was like to live in Israel. They call it living in exile. We're living in a post-Christendom situation where no longer is Christianity the dominant way of thinking in our country. Some people think that. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good way in. And so when you say that you're a Christian, your you're kind of back's against the wall. You feel a little bit defensive about who you are. And um, maybe we lose, begin to lose some of our confidence in the culture. Uh, we're not happy to kind of proclaim that we're Christians maybe at school or at work or even in some of our families, because we're just going to get mocked and ridiculed. We're not in as much danger as Daniel, because if he stood up against Nebuchadnezzar, he would just get killed. But some would say we're close to Daniel's situation. And sometimes we Christians retreat, when we feel like that, into a kind of little ghetto, where we try to find a way where we don't have to have much contact with non-Christian people. So um, I'll tell you the one about the socks. I get to speak at some of these conferences around the country and they often have these kind of stands where Christians can buy stuff. You know, book stands and CD stands and all that kind of stuff. Well, you can actually buy Christian socks. Did you know that? They're called holy socks. They're good for healing your soul. Oh, yeah. And they've got little verses on them, you know, and little kind of cuddly sheep and halos and all that. Christian socks. And what does that tell you? you know, they're somehow better, more holy, more godly than kind of normal socks. It's part of a way of saying you can retreat, can't you? you? You don't have to live in this horrible world. You can live in the Christian ghetto. You can wake up in the morning listening to Christian radio. And then go downstairs and eat your fair trade Christian breakfast cereal. And then you can go to work in your car, listening to a sermon on the way. And when you get to work, you said hello to all the guys at work, but you've got a Christian screen saver on your screen. And um, then you can kind of have as little as you can do with the people at work. So you can go back home again, listening to Christian pop songs on the way home, and uh, when you get home, uh, you can say a quick hello to your family, then nip out to Christian house group, uh, and then you can get home again, uh, maybe read a Christian book before you go to bed, and dream Christian dreams. <laughs> <laughs> do you see how, how easy it is? We're nervous. I'm scared this culture is going to destroy me. So I hide from it. I live in the Christian ghetto. Now, Daniel offers us an interesting other picture. He is living in a very, very hostile situation. And yet, there are still things he's, he has to and willingly says yes to about his culture. So as we engage, think about the digital world. There are loads of things we can say yes to about digital living. Okay? We can say yes to things like... Um, connecting with the world at a kind of global level through digital technology. Thanks to the internet, a friend of mine manages to have a weekly prayer meeting even though he has to travel a lot for his work. What he does is he uses a Skype conference call with his mates. So 7 o'clock on a Monday morning, he he, he might be in Milton Keynes, his mate might be in Africa, and his other mate uh, might be in America, but they all tune in at the same time and they pray thanks to digital connectedness. Fantastic. Really handy. Or the fact that you can tweet and you can receive information from anybody who's got a mobile phone means that we are kind of more connected globally than we've ever been before aren't we? I can know what's going on in the world much more quickly much more (coughs) easily that's fantastic that's really helpful the internet actually allows us to be more empowered than we've been before I wonder if if you'd have ever dreamed of having an article published in the Encyclopedia Britannica there's only a few a few hundred people uh, that would get a chance to write anything for Encyclopedia Britannica you wouldn't get through, you don't have enough degrees or something, wouldn't you? But anyone can contribute to Wikipedia, can't you? And actually, more people read Wikipedia than read Encyclopedia Britannica. In fact, if you go and talk to a journalist, the first thing they've done to research any topic is to look on Wikipedia. So, wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Or how many of us thought we could ever become film producers? But now all you need is a camcorder and an internet connection, and you could publish a YouTube video that is seen by more people than a a feature film would be seen. So it's incredibly empowering. We could say yes to that. But what are the things we need to say no to? I'm going to be really brief here because time is running. Well, there's an interesting book that you might enjoy. It's called Flickering Pixels by a guy called Shane Hips. And um, he has these three, three ideas of things that he thinks are negative about the internet and not, not not just about the content. We can all know bad content and bad places that we ought not go We might need help to kind of stay accountable on that kind of stuff. But he says this actually we've been we've been turned into a tribe of individuals. What does he mean? So for example, you know, I I, I drink coffee in Starbucks and I'm signed up on their Twitter update. So every now and again they send me, hey, all you uh, Starbucks community guys uh, guess what, I've got a special offer for you now you can get a caramel macchiato for half price if you come in and use this tweet code, great, I'm in <coughs> and they call us a community we're the Starbucks community but I actually don't know anybody else on the Starbucks community <laughs> to call us a community is a bit of an overstatement I've been kind of turned into part of the Starbucks tribe. And they'll tell me how stupid I am if I go and join another tribe. Like, don't go join the Costa Coffee tribe. They don't do their beans the way we do it in in Starbucks. So I've been tribalised, but I don't know anybody else in my tribe. It's an interesting idea. Or how about this? The idea of empathy at a distance. So if I'm having a bad day... I could post on Facebook. I'd write a little message about myself to tell everybody uh, how I'm feeling. So I can say my boss is rubbish. You know, I'm feeling really upset. And most people that know me want to be my friends, and they say, "Oh, it must be really bad. Don't worry, we understand." But they don't understand anything of my situation. And very, un- they're very unlikely to tell me, "Chris, stop being so kind of self-absorbed. How dare you?" you know, speak badly about your boss without you know, in such a public way, why don't you go and sort it out with him? Instead they're more likely to stroke my conscience and make me feel a little bit better. How about the third idea? Intimate and anonymity, that's another idea. So it says actually some people are really happy to talk about their feelings with people they don't know. Now why would we do that? Why would I post on my Facebook that I'm feeling upset? about something. And loads of people i never met before will, will kind of engage in conversation with me. Why is that? Well, it's strange, isn't it? Because at one level, I'm willing to be intimate with those people. I'm willing to share my feelings. But I might not ever meet them again. Um, they, they don't have any responsibility for me. They're unlikely to come and do something to help me out. They're kind of far away. And yet I still want to share myself with them. That's a strange, strange idea. So in this book, um, Shane Hipps argues that the way we're living as a culture is changing because of this. That we're not necessarily connecting in a normal community way anymore. Because I've got 2,000 friends on Facebook, I might feel really popular. But have I, have I really got any genuine friendships in my neighbourhood? Do I really know the people that live a couple of doors down from me? I've got all these friends, but what does it cost me to have these friends? what difference does it actually make to my life so I guess one of the ways that this um, digital technology we might need to question is what is it doing to genuine community, I don't think it's necessarily opposed to real community but just ask yourself, you know, to what is it doing to our normal friendships will give you one last um, uh, way of thinking about this, so I'm having coffee with someone, we're talking about kind of big important stuff and I'm noticing that every now and again he's reaching down into his pocket And he's kind of doing this. Do you know what he's doing? And when I pop off to the loo and I come back, he's doing this. Do you know know what he's doing? What's he been doing while I've been having coffee with him? He's been looking at his Facebook status and following his Twitter. So what's he saying? He says the people out there are more important than the people just here. That's weird, isn't it? Is he, is he really present right now? Or have you seen on the BT effort they did the same thing? You've got a guy phoning his mum and she says, are you in the pub? Yeah? Well, a better question is, are you on Facebook at the same time? Are you doing internet surfing? Are you emailing? Or, or are you actually talking to me? Are you really present in the conversations and the relationships you are in? Or are you somewhere else? Our time has gone. So where do we go? I think Daniel teaches us to be very discerning about who we are and what we do. And there isn't a kind of quick yes or no. So some people say Facebook evil, you know, Bible good. It's kind of that black and white. But actually Facebook is a tool. a so loads of things about Facebook are brilliant and helpful. But we just need yeah. to ask ourselves, well, okay, If I do go on Facebook, what does that mean? Where do I draw the limits? Same with Twitter, same with blogging, same with email communication, same with watching YouTube videos. So Daniel could have just said, God, good, Babylon, bad. But he didn't. Daniel says, look God, I want to honour you and serve you. Here I am. I'm yours. I'm available to you, whatever it costs, however dangerous it's going to be. I want to stay faithful to you with my heart and my mind and my body so there are things God I'm going to say yes to about this culture because you created every culture and therefore there's good in every culture I'm going to say no to some of the things in my culture because some of them are wrong there's sin in every culture sin in every community so sometimes I need to say no and Daniel says other things I'm going to wait and see I'm going to remain ambivalent about and I'll kind of watch it out later so what do we need to do? We need to say yes to God as much as possible, yes to our culture as often as we can, no to some things, and other things you might just want to get some advice on.